Kia ora, no mai haere mai to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Jeremy, I'm here with, if you want to introduce yourselves. Kia ora, I'm Taj. Kia ora, I'm Arch. Matt. And our guest today is Jade Kakia, host of the uh, podcast Indigenous Urbanism. Welcome, Jade. Oh, kia ora, thanks for having me. Um, congratulations on the podcast, firstly, it's really great. What made you think that... There, were, there was enough material for a podcast like this, but also that the appetite existed to um, devour a podcast like Indigenous Urbanism. Mm. Well, um, I think about August last year, I was on a real bent of, of looking up in, um, urbanism podcasts and listening to them at the gym on the rowing machine and sometimes when driving. <laughs> and so I kind of went through all the good ones that I could find that were popular and there were a few really great ones, as we know, but the one that really caught my attention was a podcast called Placemakers by Slate Magazine in the United States. And the cool thing about that, it was an urbanism podcast, but it was centered around community drivers, not architects, and how those community drivers are shaping and changing their community. And it was a really engaging format and really good storytelling. And I went, oh, well, I'm exposed to amazing stories of people all the time in my work. And I'm really privileged to have access to those stories. Is there anything kind of in my area of interest, which is particularly working with Indigenous communities and Māori communities here in Aotearoa? And so I looked for it, and there wasn't anything like that in my area of interest. So I thought, well, I guess that's me then. And that's how I initiate a majority of projects. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I just started doing my research, really. Um, I guess I didn't think too much about the audience aspect because of my direct experience working with communities and with other Māori designers, architects, planners. So I knew we have a whole community out there of like-minded people who are interested in, in this stuff. But I also know from talking with um, my colleagues who are not Māori that there's an increasing appetite for understanding an Indigenous worldview and how that enriches your connection to place mm. and makes society better for all of us. So I think through my work I felt reasonably confident that people would listen. <laughs> and they have. Yeah, and they have. 23 episodes, not quite yet out, but you have produced 23 episodes. Uh, we've produced 24. 24. And um, there's six out. The sixth one came out this morning and there will be one out every week through to the end of November. We should add here at 76 More Rooms that um, we're all sitting here feeling like complete amateurs with Jane, <laughs> who is newer than us on the podcast team, but has already produced more episodes than we have in four years. I know. <laughs> I, yeah. all, all 24 might be out by the time this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm completely in awe. <laughs> actually, when I was looking at what podcasts are out there, there's so few um, New Zealand podcasts. I mean, independent. There are some by the likes of and other media producers. Um, but I was looking for architecture and design podcasts, and you guys were, I think, just about it. Or there's, you know, this we one quite enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. 24 episodes, one goes fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is um, a very unique uh, position that you have, and, and these are really wonderful stories. I have mm. to say, you know, I'm. I'm Five episodes down, long time listener, um, and I'm, <laughs> I am I'm really enjoying um, the breadth of yeah. stories that you're covering. Um, do you have any criteria for selecting the stories? Um, well, I broadly sketched out a plan that centred around getting um, a diversity of locations for one. So knowing that 
can't go everywhere in the country in season one. I tried to kind of do clusters of stories around different kind of regional centres. Mm. So for this season, we go from Te Kiro to Tamaki Makoto, Waikato, Hiratanga, Poneke, and Ototaki. So pretty good spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and for each of those locations, I've um, got between two and four episodes. Tamaki's got the most with four. <laughs> um, and between each of these regional arcs, in which I tried to get a diversity of stories... Um, I've got longer conversations with practitioners, mostly Māori, but I have got some internationals leading into ideas around future seasons internationally. Um, I guess criteria, mm, part of it was around who I knew and who I knew would talk Mm. to me. Mm. Um, I think you get a much richer conversation when it's somebody that you have an existing relationship with, and relationships take time. You're not going to usually form that on the first meeting. Um, an idea that I've had is that if I've got a story but I don't have the personal link, better to have somebody who has got that connection to be the guest reporter asking the questions because that rapport is really important and it brings out these amazing stories from people because they're comfortable and because they know what you're about. So there's a challenge if you're trying to tackle stories with people you don't know. Mm. Um, so that was one criteria. Thankfully, I don't seem to know everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I've been getting around the country a lot, especially the last few years, because um, in my work with Tamatapahi, so I've just stepped away from that role, but Tamatapahi is the National Māori Housing Advocate, and I was involved, uh, along with Thoreau Hoskins, who's our chief person, in getting that really set up as a non-profit organisation from a kind of grassroots sort of collective of people. So I put my energy into that for the last few years, and that's when we go everywhere all the time. And as a result, you get to know pretty well who's on the ground and, and who's doing what. Talking about housing in particular, it seemed crazy the more I listened to um, your podcast how Maori housing initiatives have been blocked, whether it be through um, the consent process or you know whatever reasons, funding, etc. That a potential solution to this housing crisis um, lies with hapu and iwi, mm. um, but that power, the power of that potential has not yet, yet been unleashed. Do you see changes afoot in that area? Oh, totally. I mean, I think there's still a lot of barriers, but not compared to where we've come from. So I kind of think housing is, is as possible on whenua Māori and poor Māori communities as it has been since the 1860s. Mm. I mean, there's just been so many barriers in place. Um, in my area of Whangarei, we've just, uh, in February of this year, passed the Papakaina plan change. And basically what that means, instead of going through resource consent processes, Māori landowners just need to lodge a Papakaina development plan with council, which essentially would be your master plan and engineer's reports, showing that what you're doing meets the aspirations of the landowners and the carrying capacity of the land. So they've been really flexible and enabling, and... Um, I think it's going to see some changes in our area. And other councils have done this previously. So Hawke's Bay Council and Western Bay in particular have done a really good job. And I know more things are happening around the Waikato, which is a bit more tricky because it's there's nine district councils or city councils within the mm. our region. Mm. In the north, we think it's a little bit tricky coordinating our three. So, yeah. And so this is really positive, yeah, but I also wonder if there was some... Um, Frustration as you did this as to why all this has taken so long, and this is not um, criticism of Tamatapihi, but just the, the whole system that we built. Yeah, um, well, and that was the reason Tamatapihi came into existence. It was a call to action from the people to um, instigate that systems change required because the housing need is great, 
Māori communities are wanting to be able to address it, but there is still many persistent barriers. I would see the number one issue, it's not the only issue, but the number one issue is still access to finance. Um, at the moment, for whenua Māori, the only finance you can get is kind of whenua loan, mm. administered by Kiwi Bank, Bank and underwritten by Housing New Zealand. Um, but I think it's a fundamentally flawed product. And there's also just a really low lack of knowledge um, amongst lenders. And so often Māori landowners are getting misinformation, um, not realising what they need to do to be eligible. And even if you get there, you still have to build a house so it can be physically removed in the event of a default, which is really not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I've become quite interested in what they do in the United States. So the Section 184 Mortgage Guarantee is a um, federally guaranteed loan. It's similar to Kainga Whenua, but it's been picked up by a wide range of banks and it is available for off and on reservation. A bit more successful off reservation just because there's complexities like how we have to deal with the Māori Land Court. They might have to deal with um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, HUD and the um, like the tribal authority itself and there's differing levels of capacity and capability there so it can be really slow. But um, the cool thing about that product is they no longer have that provision where you can remove it and then into the default. They did it at the beginning. How they do it now is they securitize it against the leasehold interest in the land, which is 30 years with 30 years right of renewal. Haven't seen that successfully done or tested here, but I'm trying to pursue it and see could that be possible. I suspect our underwriting might be a bit too risk averse, but let's keep pushing that envelope. Um, the other cool thing about this loan product is that in some areas of the United States, the tribal authority is taking on the role of lending institution. They're buying up all the hard loans in their area. They're still lending at the same rate the bank would, but the difference between the Federal Reserve rate and the lending rate is used to reinvest into social and affordable housing in that community. So I see that as a possibility for some of our post-settlement entities that have infrastructure and capacity and capability. So I think there's models we could be drawing on to improve what we're doing. Right now it's really tough. It's still really tough. So the finance problem, I might be the one to crack. <laughs> Once you've got your next 24 episodes out, of course. <laughs> That's Sorry, amazing. <laughs> so you travelled the country talking to people, mostly who knew. Mm. Were there things that you discovered along the way that you didn't know? You, know, you talked about stories that you... Oh my God, always, about. always. Yeah. It's never done learning. And, you know, I, something that amazed me is even with people I know really well, that I talk to and work with all the time, I still learn things from the interviews. Like you think, oh yeah, I know your story. And then you hear something and you're like, wow, that's that's incredible. Um, So yes, and I think because I had that opportunity to sit down one-on-one with people or do walkthroughs with people, you're sort of really engaging that thing of deep deep listening and just really paying attention to what they're saying. Mm. And then I listen to it like two more times, so it Mm. really gets in. Um, but actually on that deep listening thing, I, I just want to use this to say a personal view, but I really think that's the number one skill of an architect. And so for me, it's like this is training and practice and, and honing those skills and to be able to really listen to people. Mm. Mm. Yep. You have a master's degree in architecture. I How do you see architecture fitting into the equation of Indigenous urbanism that you're portraying in the podcast? Where, What part does it play? And do you still consider yourself consider it one of your goals to be an architect in that sense or do you see yourself playing a kind of more advocacy role? Okay, you know, I've just um, I've just moved away from my advocacy role 
actually, although I'm still on some boards, so I'm, I'm still doing that. <laughs> but I'm not working for Tamatsupiki anymore. Um, that's up and running, which is really wonderful and hopefully continue to go from strength to strength. Um, but I've stepped away and I, besides having projects like this, I am focusing on my own design work. So I've got two Papakainga projects in Whangarei that are about to start. So we should be able to have the funding through probably September, October, and then we'll get the site survey and probably do a project development winding for both those projects in November and, and crack into the, into the design work. So yes, that's definitely a goal of mine. Um, you know, I, when I finished my master's, I went was working at Design Tribe with Row and Dark Skins, and I was like, yep, focusing on registration, gonna finally get this architecture thing. I started architecture school in 2006, so it's been a while. Um, but you know, it's a long apprenticeship, and I was really focused, and then our funding for Matsubiki came through, and I said to Row, well, you know, what do you think I should do? He said, well, you know, we've put so much work into getting it to this point, you know, you probably should put your energies in there because Matsupi was a critical point where I was required to really get it going, whereas Design Tribe, as much as I really loved the work there, they didn't need me as much as our non-profit co did. Mm. So I kind of just went where the need was, and I don't regret that decision. I think um, I've done some really great work. Plus, I know how to run a non-profit, which I think is kind of like mm. running a business. Mm. So I picked up all these crazy mm. skills. Um, so now I'm just going to focus on my own design work in Whangarei and how I am dealing with the registration thing is there's an architect in Whangarei, her name's Felicity Christian, and I just asked her if she'd consider supervising me on my projects and she thought about it and thankfully she said yes. And it just means that I, I get to lead my projects but I've got somebody much more experienced than me who can support me, guide me. And it'll probably work like this. At the beginning, I'll do most of the work. And as we get down to contract admin, for instance, which I've never done, she'll do a lot more, but I'll learn by working alongside mm. her. Mm. So it's really ideal, and I'm so lucky that she said yes, because I was it was it was a challenge to be able to take on my own projects and not have that registration and not, you know, you need that support. Mm. I want to be doing a good job, but it's just I also want to leading these projects that I've worked really hard to get off the ground. Mm, mm, absolutely. I was, I was partly asking that because architecture also often risks being crushed by process. Mm. But do you feel you know enough about process now from doing this podcast and working in the advocacy area that you can prevent that from happening as much? Reframe your question. What do you think? <laughs> um, architecture is about working with constraints, right? Mm. But sometimes the constraints, which you illustrate in the podcast of resource consenting mm. and all the other things um, can kind of squash architecture and it becomes buffeted by all these other winds rather than um, being able to stay strong in the centre. Do you think you can kind of centre architecture at the, at the heart of the development process um, that you're going to be engaged in? Um, I, yeah, I guess so. I think it depends on the way you really define architecture and yeah. what architecture is for. I mean, the work that I do is so centered around the needs and aspirations of, of the community, mm -hmm. really listening to what they, they're telling us, what the land's telling us, and weaving through and working through all of these other constraints. So I think because it's so grounded in values and people in place, as long as you stay true to that, then I don't, I don't see that as a risk. I see that as being the core of the architecture and that being expressed in, in the built environment. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, that's really well. I feel that I'm not concerned. Um, and because we're doing this together, so it's not about 
me and what I think is a nice idea. Mm-hmm. It's following mm-hmm. a really robust process where we move forward together. And presumably your work to date has given you quite an insight into all of those other steps, you know, the consenting process, for example, and some of those other kind of the lending process, all of those other complex issues that are required to bring a project about. Sometimes it seems a bit schizophrenic, the kind of skill set I've developed, but actually, just to slightly divert, um, I graduated around the global financial crisis and there was no jobs. And so then I branched off and did a whole range of other things. And at the time it was like really frustrating, but now I'm actually really grateful that I've been exposed to such a wide variety of things and and had a chance to work on on so many parts of that process. Like, I've done a surprising amount of planning consulting, (laughs) Um, you know, for instance, and I've done a bit of construction work and I've done a stupid amount of graphic design and kind of media work and, Mm. you know, all these things are actually really useful to the practice of architecture, Mm. it turns out. Mm. I kind of wonder sometimes if you go into an office and do what an architecture graduate does, um, it could take a very, very long time to be a real architect. Actually, the things around those roles and the other things you bump up against that help you form, a, I think, a clearer view of what architects do. So it sounds like you've been bumping into a lot of things around the, the yeah. edges as well. And I think um, it's, well, almost a shame that when you go through your education, you learn so little about the practice side of things or, you know, have practice management and even the regulatory stuff, because I actually think that's something that I'm really strong in. And I, it took getting out into the world to realise. You just don't, I don't know. I suppose they say, oh, well, it's the tip of the iceberg and then you graduate and you'll learn everything else. But I don't know. In a lot of ways, I think you get the wrong idea about what architecture is and what, what the realities are, because it's not what you're exposed to at university. Mm. And the idea that it's about, you know, a person, the design as well, bringing something into life but the process as you're describing is coming up from a totally different foundation and bedrock mm. and community mm. coming into the and you know you said listen to the people and listen to the land mm. it's almost an inversion of some of the first things we were exposed mm. to in architecture school which is that it's coming out yeah. of your head and you're enforcing <laughs> um, which kind of leads me I guess to the one question I had your tagline one of your taglines is decolonizing decolonization through design mm. which is a really great pithy condensation um, can you expand it out a bit more, though, and just talk about what that concept is? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, so I think that the reason that I and so many others get into architecture is because we feel that if we can shape the physical environment, we can get those positive social and cultural outcomes that we want. But, of course, it's a reciprocal relationship. It's not the environment creates these behaviours and that's that your behaviours also shape the environment and it's a constant back and forth. So I guess the way I see it is that we go through this process of decolonising ourselves and whether that be through ideas or what we're reading or what we're talking about and that influences things like our political systems and our planning systems. So there's all that side of things and then we want to start shaping our environment differently because it changes changes our worldview and idea around power and balance. But then if you have an environment that's increasingly becoming a decolonized space, it impacts the way you think and the way you behave. So I think it's that backwards and forwards that's actually really amazing and really positive. Um, so, for example, and you would, might have heard this in, in the Mangakakia episode with Aroha and her whanau, is what I see what they're doing is decolonising through design. Mm. They're reoccupying their ancestral whenua. Mm. 
their living communally as they did before, but with the benefits of modern technology and advances. You know, we're not anti-progress, but there's some really good things about how we used to live in the past, and I don't think we should lose sight of that. They're true to their tikanga, and they're also looking to, um, to a degree, bypass conventional monetary systems, because if you're interdependent and supporting one another and you're producing a lot of your own food and, and meeting your own needs, then it's actually quite radical, mm. and it really changes things. Mm. And so that's one way of doing it through our rethinking our household units, so rather than these single kind of family homes living in a more communal way that's better connected with each other in the whenua, which is at the core of papakainga and, and things like co-housing. And then another aspect that I explore a lot in the podcast is how we're changing the face of our cities so that it does connect you and ground you in place. And, you know, for those of us who are not from cities like Tamaki, um, whether you're Māori or not Māori, understanding those pūrākau, understanding the stories and the cultural narratives that grounds you in place, but it also gives you the perspective to respect mana whenua and their role as kaitiaki and their long history in association and ongoing history in association and relationship. And so I think that changes the balance of power. And I think if people understand it, they're more invested and more um, interested in supporting mana whenua and aspirations and respecting their role. Whereas I think if you don't have any context, you, you know, you, I mean, if you've ever read some of the planning submissions, they're terrible. People are like, oh, oh this is on the top of Kainga plan sheet. They're like, oh, there's going to be a shanty town and, oh, they're not going to pay their rates and, you know, race-based wow. separatism, you know. Yeah, it's, it's funny until you start crying because it's so yeah. many of them. Yeah. I mean, Whangarei is not everywhere, but, you know, mm. yeah. that's often under the surface. And I think that comes from a place of not understanding. Yeah. And I think that actually really essentially comes back to the treaty. If we have a good understanding of our treaty as a living document and the positive relationship for both parties that it articulates and the place it guarantees for everybody here, then I think we start on an even footing and a place of respect. Mm. So. Mm. Remember Roe talked about the bridge. Yeah, yeah. Going back yeah. and forth across yes. the bridge. Yeah. We spoke in our last episode. It's really nice. Because you sound optimistic now, but how did you, when you're in 2013 and these things aren't being adopted into the long-term plan, etc., how did you retain your optimism through that period? Because there must have been quite a few moments where you and your colleagues at Matapihi and many others mm -hmm. just felt like um, screaming into a pillow, I imagine. Um, or not a pillow. Or not a pillow. <laughs> yeah, at somebody. I think things... Um I've always moved enough to retain some optimism, even when they're slow. I mean, in my lifetime and in my working lifetime. So that's helpful because even small wins can kind of keep you going. Um, I think it helps that we've got Ngāho, which is our Māori Design mm. Professionals Network, because even if we're having frustrations in our work, we can support one another. That's been key to me even staying in architecture. I nearly, mm -hmm. I, I nearly left so many times just because I didn't feel that I could really make much headway. I could see what I thought architecture was for and, and what I, how I wanted to contribute, but it just seemed like mainstream practice and the way the whole profession operated was so at odds with that. But I do see that changing because of people like Roe. Mm. Mm. And, and actually, that's really significant. We talked about um, that when we interviewed um, Ro a few episodes ago about the 
um, lack of representation of Māori in architecture in particular and, and, and perhaps why weren't students, um, potential students, um, seeing that as a possible career path for them? Do you think it's because they're not seeing themselves reflected in the built environment? Or is it more complex? Uh, I think that's part of it. I think um, actually seeing that that's a job that Māori can have. Like, mm. I remember growing up and it's like, well, I didn't, I didn't know any Māori professionals, like, mm. you know, my family cleaners and, like, labourers and work in factories and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of work, but I didn't really know what you could aspire to. Mm. Māori TV actually was a big thing for me in that respect mm. because to be able to see people who are professionally like, oh, it's not just it's not just a Pākehā thing, it's like, you know. Mm. And now there's a huge rising Māori professional class, but, you know, when I was growing up, I really didn't know anybody who was in those kind of roles. Mm. Um, I think it also helped when, well, the big one for me was my auntie, uh, Eliza. She, when I was going through architecture school, she was like, oh, our whanaunga is, is an architect and he does the kind of things you want to do. I'll, I'll link you up. So she linked me up with mm. So Because he's from Whakapara, that's the next that I am from Pihiawari. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that was really great. Um, and he's been um, a real guiding light for so many Māori yeah. students. Mm just quietly supporting us all mm. and you know he'll never he never says no and he's always really supportive and you know I just think we're, we're lucky to have him and I think that because I've been invested in so much and supported by great mentors I don't I always think it's not too early to start supporting ones that are coming mm. so even if you're not that far progressed like I'm you know, not that far progressed, but I'm already supporting um, other colleagues who might be five years behind me and, and finding opportunities and ways to bring them through and support them. So I think if we all keep doing that, that it'll just, you know, keep mm. carrying mm. forward. Will your podcast be the, the, one of those ways that you do that too, right? Mm. Yeah. Well, something I've tried to do in the practitioner profiles is not just cover our very experienced practitioners, but also some of our younger emerging um, practitioners. Mm -hmm. So, and giving them that same kind of space and time. So that that was one of my goals. So we've got a mixture here. I wanted to ask you about the Papakainga housing project you said you were working on. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe what that is like and what you think the design outcomes of it will be after the, the period of consultation? How far down the track are you now? Yeah, sure. Um, well, there's two, but I'll talk about the one that's, well, they're kind of at the same stage, but one of them, we did this other project that kind of led into it. So I'll talk about that one. Um, so we've got a block of Māori freehold land on Whangarei Harbour, and it was where my grandfather was born and raised, and um, that was the last generation to live there, actually. Um, so 64 hectares. I don't know if you guys know Whangarei at all, but if you're coming into town, there's like a girls' service station and the new McDonald's. <laughs> you right. You look to the right and there's an industrial area with Harvey Norman and a bunch of other kind of things. And it's anyway, so if you looked straight in that way towards the harbour, it's up the hill and mm -hmm. down to the harbour. And it used to have pine forestry on there until 2012. So the reason it was put in pine is because the, the harbour board and others were really putting pressure on to try and get our land. At one point, the Māori trustee took it forcibly and they, they couldn't get a lease for it. Um, so they ended up giving it back after they failed to lease it out to anybody. 
because um, it's terrible for cattle, mm. that's what they were trying to get a lease on. Mm. So under that conditions, um, the rangatira of the time, um, they made the decision to put it into forestry. So our family all pitched in and we, put the, we planted the trees. Um, but for a variety of reasons, those trees didn't give a very good return. But thankfully, we planted under the 50 hectares, which is what locks you into the emission trading scheme. It's like 49 point something. <laughs> My cousin and I were talking about it last night. And we're like, how did they know? Like, it's like <laughs> really amazing. So we managed to get out of the um, ETS instead of being forced to replant. And then the future was wide open. We could do what we want. Um, but of course, because we hadn't had really an active management structure, you know, there was just trees on there. It took a bit of time to build that up. Um, so we did a bit of strategic planning after the trees came down, and one of the goals was to develop a, what we were calling a Fenwa concept plan, and that was to quite comprehensively scope out what are the potential land uses and what might we want to pursue. Um, so then my family brought me on board to develop an approach for that. Um, we didn't have any money at the time, so like, oh, I want to come on the committee, so I did. And then I got us the funding and resigned from the committee and did the work. Um, so that project wrapped up in May of this year, and what we've produced is an overall plan that includes our um, aspirations of our shareholders, because we did a number of Wananga. It includes our whakapapa, what connects us. Um, we did a series of maps, so there's a cultural map, mapping out our site's significance and the history of land alienation, what our tūpuna used the whenua for before, and what places are important to us and why. Um, then there's also a map around regulatory uh, context and infrastructure, so current and proposed district plan provisions and where our points of infrastructure connection are, with a simple plain language explanation for the shareholders that just breaks down why this is important. Um, and then we also looked at some land use capability mapping, um, just basic land use capability. What it found was it's uh, hilly and marginal soils good for forestry, which we did already know. Um, <laughs> but there were, yeah, there was some sort of useful stuff. Um, and with all of that, we synthesised that information, plus with the values development work and aspiration stuff we did with our shareholders in Fano, and broke the land down into zones with a list of potential uses by each zone that uh, that we thought would align with our values and, and the best use of our land. And from there, we did a bit of a pre-feasibility study for each different land use. Um, and then from there, we developed like a staged master plan with uh, one, one to five to ten years, so it's chicken points at two, five and ten years. Um, I say master plan, but it's, it's more conceptual, um, but it's going to guide us for the next 10 years. And then there's a 50 to 100-year vision of what might be there in the future. And so what we've ended up with is kind of an industrial commercial development down the, the end that's adjacent those uses already. So that's a no-brainer and an easy fit with uh, what council will permit. Um, we've got a number of ideas. My one I'm real keen on is live workspaces. But I actually need to, this is like all my good ideas. It's like, well, that'd be nice, but now I actually have to do the investigative work to figure out if it's going to work. And there's lots of other ideas, but some mm. kind of money-generating economic activity that also aligns with our cultural values, which have got a real focus on environmental, positive environmental outcomes. So we don't want to do anything that's going to de degrade our whenua. Um, and then on the harbour side, we're looking at marae, re-establishment of marakai or like food gardens, re-establishing access to our harbour for um, mahinakai and then also papakainga. So probably we're looking at around 100 homes there 
And then in the balance of the block, which is the big space in between, we're looking at regenerating our ngahere, our bush, um, regrowing native native timbers um, to mostly increase biodiversity, but with the ability to selectively hand mill for special uses. Um, also growing tree crops like manuka and kanuka. Um, rongwa, kumarahai grows really well there. And then also looking at things like ecocultural tourism, so like mountain biking and zipline that could be opportunities for whānau run business. Um, yeah, so there's a, a wide range of activities planned for that site. And now we've got a clear goal and vision for the future. And so now we're on to our stage one projects, which is the first part of the commercial development and the first um, stage of the papakainga. So for the Papakainga, we're aiming for 10 homes in the first stage. Um, we've prepared our project plan and all our consultants' quotes. And I uh, met with the funder yesterday, and they've got allocations, so they're going to be able to fund it. So I just need to fill out the cover form and get it all finalised, and we should have that in in a few weeks. And hopefully the political climate being what it is at the moment, it should move pretty swiftly. Mm. Um, so that's what we're up to. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Producing podcast episodes. Yeah. <laughs> that's really uh, such an exciting project, and I imagine because it's your family, mm -hmm. it um, must have a special place in your heart. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's, so, it's so amazing to be able to give back in this mm -hmm. way. Um, I don't know. And I, I had one of my uncles say the other day, oh, you know, your grandfather would be so proud of you. You know, we're so proud of you. But, like, my, I was really close with my grandfather, but he, he passed away when I was 20. And I was like, oh, now I'm like, I was barely a person. Like, <laughs> like, you know, I've done so much since then. So I always think about him and, and his siblings, so, you know, because we were all mm. close. But I think, I don't know, it's nice to think of them and, and, you know, go, well, I hope I'm doing what they would think was correct. Mm. Mm. And you're already talking about a future second season. Oh, Yes. Um, so, um, what I'm hoping to do is I want to do a season Australia and the Pacific. So I was just in Australia with our colleagues there, so I've got some good ideas for projects, and I'm quite keen to get one of my colleagues who's um, also a younger practitioner like myself to be the guest reporter on that season, because um, I just think that one, it would. I just think it would be better listening, and I think it's kind of better for our industry and better for that kind of peer-to-peer -peer and relationship building, and just even just building empathy. Like mm -hmm. I found what's so helpful as I get around is because I'm doing work with my own people at home, I can relate to other whanau that are going through a similar thing, mm -hmm. and you end up having kind of a better conversation because you're already on the same page. Mm -hmm. Plus, my but I small talk is really good. <laughs> I feel like I'm terrible at small talk in general, but I've that one <laughs> You know, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I'm hoping to follow the same kind of format, but get around to um, locations in Australia and the Pacific. Mm. And I'm also looking at a Turtle Island edition, so Canada and the United States, um, because we I led a study to a through Canada and the US last year, May last year. So it was a three-week trip and we went to Seattle, Vancouver, Ottawa for a symposium at the Wabano Center as part of the Festival of Architecture. And then we also went to Phoenix through to Albuquerque. And at each step of the way, we were hosted by our colleagues because we've got this growing community of international indigenous architects. And it was just amazing the experiences we had. 
and I just really struck me every step of the way. I could have gone to these cities or even to these neighborhoods or whatever, but I would not have had anything like that experience if I didn't have that personal mm. connection. Mm. So it was, I, we were talking about it on our recent trip to Melbourne, myself and our other um, colleagues, just going, it's actually really life changing. Um, so I feel like we're kind of part of this growing global movement. So if I can kind of help to start documenting those stories, I think that'll be really useful. Tempted to release the second season a la Netflix and just dump them all in one go so we can just binge and just back to back them rather than dribbling them out every week. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's more hard. I dropped three on the first day. True, yeah. true. Because I did my research on like podcasts and how you should do it. And a few of the things I was reading said you should drop three to five on the first day because so they were saying like they had had somebody complain and give them a negative rating because they only had one out and they were like mad because they wanted to keep listening. <laughs> so you run that risk if you don't like. <laughs> We've done it all wrong. <laughs> Actually, reading off on podcast marketing, it's really weird because I guess there's this real American thing of marketing for marketing's sake. Yeah. There was some useful stuff in there, but some of them were like, just spam all of your family and friends. Tell them they don't even have to listen. Just leave a rating. And I was like, why would you even bother to place it in the first place if you don't want people to listen? Yeah, it was mental, but I did get some good tips out of that, and that was one of them was to start with three. Um, I'm not tempted to drop them all in one go because, I don't know, I, that might work for Netflix. I don't know if it works too well for podcasts. Uh-huh. I don't, know if I'm, I don't know if I'm willing to be the guinea pig. Plus, it doesn't work with my marketing plan because, you know, you want to get in, like, blogs and, like, magazines and stuff. So if I drop it all at once, it kind of, ruins the opportunity for people to kind of come in along the way. No anticipation. No anticipation. Mm. We've got so much to learn from you. (laughs) (laughs) Jade, thank you so much. Congratulations on the podcast and the work you're doing is so exciting and and important. Yeah, 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 really important. Really important. So we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. No, thanks for having me. It's been a really fun discussion. I hope you didn't mind me talking the whole time. (laughs) And um, uh, Indigenous Urbanism can be found everywhere you look yeah iTunes iTunes, Spotify Stitcher like any podcasting app you will get it and you can also get it on indigenousurbanism.net you're on Instagram I am where else Twitter Twitter. very good brilliant oh thank you it's been fantastic talking to you